Hello and welcome to this week's episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Before we start, I want to tell you what is coming in the month of May over at patreon.com forward slash a mic on the podium. Coming soon is my interview with the Chief Executive of Askenas Holt, Donna Collins. Askenas Holt are one of the world's leading agencies and managers of conductors, and I found out how they go about managing their conductors and how they choose them. This interview, as well as many more interviews, articles, companion episodes to this podcast, and a 50-minute film I've made on how to start a youth orchestra from scratch, are available for subscribers from as little as £5 a month. The details on how to join are in the show notes below, and it would be great to see many of you join our supporters club and get so much more content about the world of conducting. Today, I conduct a conversation with an American conductor who's had a long and distinguished career. He started out studying composition with Messian, and then went on to have positions with orchestras in the US, Belgium and Germany, and is now teaching back home in the US at the New England Conservatory in Boston. It's a great pleasure to welcome Hugh Wolfe. Hugh, lovely to see you today and to speak to you. Thank you. Nice to be here. It's been a while. When I first joined the CBSO, um, you came quite often. I remember recording things by Aaron J. Kernis and, yeah, it's sort of really taken me back to my, my playing days, seeing you today. Indeed, yeah. <laughs> Those Aaron J. Kernis pieces were an adventure. They were, yes, they were. Um, let's go right back to the beginning. How? Because I don't know, I really, how did music first enter your life as a child? Were you a musical family um, or did it come out of the blue? How did it first start for you? It was a bit out of the blue, I think. I'm not from a musical family. Uh, my parents were sort of casual classical music lovers, but uh, not practicing musicians. My father probably couldn't carry a tune in a paper bag. <laughs> um, so I got started fairly late for professional musicians. Um, I started taking piano lessons when I was 10. I have two older sisters, and one of my older sisters was taking piano lessons, which is what you did back then. Yeah. And I think I kind of looked over her shoulder and showed some interest and started trying to figure it out myself. And so my parents took the cue and said, all right, let's have him have lessons as well. <laughs> and, you know, after a couple of years, I was progressing. Uh, I think from my sister's point of view, I was progressing faster than she was. And <laughs> I think she, she got the hint and quietly stopped playing and then you know by the time I was 12 or 13 I was probably practicing a couple hours a day and making progress. Yeah uh, the next place of note I note uh, when doing my homework on you uh, is Harvard and then Peabody. Did you study music um, at well, obviously at Peabody yes but at Harvard what were you studying what were you majoring in? Um, I started out at Harvard thinking I would be a scientist, maybe mathematics major. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I laugh now because I took these kind of upper level physics and math classes my freshman year. I shouldn't say upper level, but not the introductory, yeah. sort of the level for people that are supposed to be interested in physics and math my freshman year at Harvard. And I soon realized that I was the guy in the class that had no idea what was going on. I was very good at this in high school, but being good at it in high school and being good at it at Harvard were two different things I discovered. Yeah. The yeah. people that were, that were serious about it were on a different planet from me. Hmm. And kind of the converse was true in the music classes I was taking. I was taking upper level theory. I had studied composition as well as piano yeah. as, as a teenager. And so I was able to go in and take like third year theory my first year and there I was doing well so after about a year I kind of I took the hint <laughs> and I said to myself well I think I better do the thing I'm doing well at not the thing where I don't understand anything in the class yeah. and so after about a year I, I became a music major and you could not major in any performing music at Harvard back then it was only musicology or composition and since I was a serious composer I majored in composition. Well, I thought for a while there you were going to be like the last person I interviewed, which um, which was Gemma New, uh, who's a New Zealand-born uh, conductor, who did major in maths and physics and still uses yeah. it now in her score studies. Um, yeah, I mean there are a few there are a few <laughs> professional musicians out there who's yeah who have these kind of polymath backgrounds. Yes. I started out that way, but I didn't end up. 
Uh, and so composition became uh, the thing for you. At the moment, conducting has not appeared. Would I be right in thinking that? Well, it, it actually appeared my last year at university because right. uh, the very first conducting I did is probably something many composers do, which mm -hmm. is you conduct your own music. Nobody else is going to put the music together. So I would sort of figure out how to conduct a piece I had written and gather some friends to play it. That even happened in high school where I, the piece was in three and I conducted it backwards. And, <laughs> and the musicians afterwards said, you were very good, except most people do three like this. And as a pianist, <laughs> I had no idea what doctors were supposed to do. Anyway, in, in college, I conducted some of my own music. And then there was a, a little chamber orchestra at Harvard called the Bach Society Orchestra, which uh, Alan Gilbert also conducted when he was at Harvard and uh, a bunch of us. It yeah. was student run, student managed, no faculty supervision. And every year they would audition anybody who wanted to conduct it for the following year. And although I basically had no idea what I was doing, neither did anybody else because <laughs> this was Harvard, not a music conservatory. Yeah. And they asked me to be the conductor my last year at Harvard. And so I actually put together five concerts and we did, you know, a subscription series of five public concerts for chamber orchestra. And that's, and that got me hooked. Yeah, I, yeah. I never looked, I never looked back after that. Yeah. And at, at that stage, because I know later on when you, you go to Paris and study composition with Messiaen, and then a name appears as a, as a conducting teacher in your biography, but I'm assuming at that stage, you were just winging it on what you knew or were you having lessons even then? I wasn't having any lessons. I got a little nervous the summer before my senior year thinking, well, maybe I should figure out how to do this. Yeah. And so I did have a couple of lessons with uh, a couple of people like Murray Sidlin, Richard Pittman, people you probably don't know, but people who were, you know, younger conductors with reputations both in Boston and in Washington. And, yeah. and they gave me enough confidence to think I knew that how to get, how to get through it. But, but on, to, on to Paris, and as I mentioned, uh, I'd love to find out what studying composition with Messiaen was like. And then a name appears, Charles Brooke, um, who is credited as teaching, being really your first teacher or mentor. So what was Messiaen like? Um, and, and then when you came to study with Charles Brooke, what was his method? Was he a, was he a score guy or was he a stick technique guy or, a, or the whole overall package? Yeah, um, yeah, good questions. The... When I went to Paris, I, I, I decided I would sort of equally divide time between piano, composition, and conducting, mm. thinking I was Rachmaninoff, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, lofty I, ambitions are good for us yeah, all, aren't they? Yeah. It was kind of, a, kind of an idiotic plan in a certain way. And it started out with me auditioning for Messiaen's class at the Conservatoire, which is an audition that hasn't changed, I think, since Berlioz's day. It was hilariously uh, rigorous. Yeah. They, they do what they call mise en loge. They, they, they lock you in a room with no, no way in or out. Yeah. Nobody had mobile phones back then or anything like that. <laughs> and you have an assignment to write, you know, in the style of Haydn, a string quartet based on this tune. And, and you have to come out with, you know, maybe five minutes of music after eight hours. It's an eight hour day. Wow. Wow. And then you do another one in a kind of more modern style. Then, so I remember writing something kind of in the style of Bartok. And, yeah. and uh, so amazingly, I got into this class. <laughs> and the class was really fascinating in that it was very international. There were, I remember, students from Japan, from America, obviously from France, from the UK, from around Europe. He astonishingly taught 12 hours a week, this class. Hmm. You didn't have private lessons with him, but it was a composition masterclass. Yeah. And, it, and I thought, I, I quickly thought to myself, what a waste of this genius's time. <laughs> you know, because we met four hours a day, three days a week, like yeah. from nine to one, as I recall, three days a week. And even a class of about 15, I think they were all men back there, to be honest. I think. Yeah. 15 of us, we certainly couldn't write music fast enough for him to spend 12 hours a week uh, doing a masterclass on our music. Yeah, yeah. So the class was, was a lovely kind of 
survey of the music he found interesting and the music we found interesting. And, you know, at the time, I remember we brought in the score to George Crumb's. There were two Americans in the class, myself and Gerald Levinson, as I recall. Maybe there was another one. And we brought in the score to George Crumb's Ancient Voices of Children. To, and of course, you know, back then, this was 1975, 1976, there, there wasn't Spotify or any way for people to hear this music, you know, unless it had been recorded and you went out and bought the vinyl disc. And so sharing scores from music musicians and composers that we all liked became part of the class. And then of course, the most important part of the class was Messiaen doing his kind of famous analyses of Petrushka, Rite of Spring, he brought in Don Giovanni, he brought in Beethoven V, and, you know, and he would sit at the piano and just say what was important to him about this music or how he thought it was put together. And there are nuggets from that, I remember to this day, that were absolutely yeah. fantastic, particularly his, his rhythmic analysis of mm. Rite of Spring, which was really revelatory. Wow. Uh, what a class to be involved with. Um, yeah, did, but, but I, have to, I have to admit that I was a terrible student. And <laughs> I mean, I went to that class, but that's the only class I went to. And that, right. was, that was not really allowed. I had been admitted into the conservatory and I was supposed to be going to Solfège and to other classes. Yeah. And finally, around Christmas time, they caught up with me and they said, where have you been? And I admitted that I hadn't been because I was really only interested in Messiaen's class. And the conservatory got really kind of angry about that. And so I had to basically fish or cut bait. I had to drop out in the sense that at that point I was seriously studying conducting with Brooke privately yeah. and piano with a guy named Pierre Sancon. And I had somewhat foolishly decided to enter the Montreal International Piano Competition. And so I decided I better spend my time preparing for that. And so I dropped out of Messiaen's class. So I was there for half a year. I loved every minute of it. He was such an interesting man, but I can't honestly say I was a graduate of the conservatoire or a good student of his. <laughs> but, but maybe you were with Charles Brooke. Um, what, was he, what, was his, uh, what was he teaching you um, during your private lessons with him? He was the, the protege of uh, Pierre Monteux. Yeah, he, was born, yeah. he was born in Hungary, but he lived his, most of his adult life in France, in Paris. And he was the conductor of the, the Orchestre Philharmonique de la Radio France back then. And he, the, I think he was with the Strasbourg Orchestra and the Amsterdam Opera. He had quite a big career in Europe. He had a, a, a really, really bad temper and a nasty personality. And of course, it kind of, it kind of ruined his own career. Yes, yeah, it would it, do, it, yeah. It, it made him one of these really interesting, rigorous Socratic teachers. He was, yeah. as you asked, was he a score guy or a stick guy? He was very much a score guy. Right. He really yeah. wasn't all that interested in stick. He, he, he had Monteux's big, clear, fluid beat, and that's what he imparted to all of us. Mm. Um, but he was more a real stickler for score study. And if, if you ever asked him a, a question, he would respond with a question, you know, it mm. would it was that kind of teaching, you know, he yeah. never, ever gave you an answer. He always made you dig, dig for it. He could be very nasty. He could be very humiliating. He would not do well in today's woke and politically correct <laughs> world. And in, fact, and in fact, he didn't do very well in, in the 70s, 80s and 90s as his guest conducting kind of yeah. disappeared. What one fun experience that year was, you know, he was still in demand as a guest conductor in the Soviet Union for, <laughs> for the reason that, you know, bad tempered, nasty autocrats could do fine in the Soviet yeah, Union. They, in the 70s. They, they didn't mind so much as the yeah. rest of the world. Yeah. So I, so I actually traveled with him to see him guest conduct the Leningrad Phil and the Moscow, the Marvinsky Orchestra and the Svetlanov Orchestras back then. And that yeah. was absolutely fascinating. And he did really, I mean, he did Dalla Piccola's The Prisoner. Wow. And The Rite of Spring and Brahms First. And I mean, this was a couple of weeks of guest conducting. And I came along as his kind of, the guy that carried his scores. 
Later, I realized one of the reasons he did this, it was very clever. He always, when he guest conducted, would have whatever protege was around to come with him to Russia because they paid him in rubles and you couldn't transfer rubles into French francs back then to get any money at all. Mm. So he would give me rubles and then I would reimburse him in francs. So what, so a certain amount of his fee, he would encourage me to spend as much as I possibly, he kept saying, oh, why don't you buy this? Or you yeah, need a yeah. fur hat, buy this fur hat, because all of that was going to be money I would be reimbursing him for yes. buying me. <laughs> that's a, that's, a, that's a, a way around a problem. <laughs> yeah, it was a very strange way around. That yeah. shouldn't imply that he wasn't very generous. He was indeed very generous, but, yeah. but uh, it was a kind of funny, funny way for him to get around the controls. I mean, I asked the question about the scores versus his stick technique because, you know, around this time and beforehand, obviously you had the Swarovski class in Vienna and both Mater and Abado have gone on record of saying, you know, how long were you taught stick technique? And they said about 10 minutes. I said, yeah. well, no class. Yeah. And they said, no, but about 10 minutes, period. Um, whereas, yeah. you know, at the same time, you could go to Moosin in Leningrad as it was then and it was virtually all about what you did with your hands and arms so uh, and and nowadays you know I think a lot of teaching which will come to yours uh, later on you know maybe there's a much more sort of a general overall approach um, I don't know I mean uh, the people I've spoken to there seems to now be sort of split down the middle but yeah it's always interesting to find out um, what the teachers of, of uh, Days Gone By were like. <laughs> he sounds like yeah. a fasc fascinating character. <laughs> well, he had, I mean, what, what came out of that was he taught at what was, what is actually is still called the Pierre Monteux School here. It's a summer kind of little summer music festival with student players in the orchestra. Uh. All the conductors have to be in the orchestra. It's in the state of Maine, up in New England, north of here. Uh, usually in July. Pierre mm. Monteux had a property there and Pierre Monteux started this school and Lauren Mazel, David Zinman, Leon Fleischer all went to that school actually. Right. And Neville Mariner was there when Monteux was in charge. When Monteux died, Brooke, who was his protege and his assistant in San Francisco and other places, took over and he ran it until he died in 95. And now mm. it's run by a pupil of Brooks. Mm. And there, of course, there was an orchestra and, and the students did all the conducting. It was a little bit like any kind of master class, but it was five days a week and a concert every Sunday. And that's where you really learned from him. Mm. Uh, he, he was legendary for his Hungarian accent, his lisp and his temper. <laughs> and almost anybody that's ever been there can do hilarious imitations of him screaming at you. Yeah. But, but there, I did, there I did learn a, a really a tremendous amount. And that, that, was, that was the actual professional conducting training that I got. Yeah. That was, a, that was, any, that was of real importance to me. And so the next time, uh, 1979, you become assistant to Rostropovich at the National Symphony Orchestra, Washington, D.C. Uh, in episode one, that was the last time we, um, Rostropovich's name came up, which was with Andrew Litton, who had the same job. Oh, yeah, um, yeah uh, we, were, we were there together for three years. So we oh, know wow, each other. okay, right. We overlapped. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, and so, yeah, uh, uh, Andrew was telling me, you know, the sorts of things he learned from... Rostropovich, what was your take on your time with Rostropovich, or even whether you and Andrew Litton sort of learnt off each other as well? If you, if we you... probably, yeah, we probably did. I mean, we were there together for a few years. I was kind of earlier there, so I was slightly senior to Andrew for yeah. a couple of years, and then Andrew stayed on after I left. Um, I think with Slava, the most, I mean, the most important thing we all learned from Slava was this kind of passion, relentless passion for the music. You know, yeah. this uh, he used to say, you are all soldiers for music. And this, this I mean, that was a, an image that maybe today feels a little strange, but, yeah. but at the time it was a kind of, you know, you had to be willing to devote your life to it and ridiculous numbers of hours. And 
one thing about Slava was no matter where we were performing or what the conditions were or how dismal things might be, he, he acted like every performance was a life and death experience, you know, not just artistically life and death, but mm. almost really life and death, you know, yeah. I mean, he gave that much at performances. And that was, you know, kind of fantastically inspiring and fantastically important. And, mm. and I think secondary to that was his, his connection to and knowledge of Russian repertoire, particularly Prokofiev and Shostakovich, whom he knew Mm. And for whom at that time in my life, I didn't have much interest. You know, I was not particularly a Shostakovich guy back then. And he opened up a whole world to me. And now I think of Shostakovich as one of the most interesting and important composers and a composer that actually I find resonates with audiences and students today, <laughs> yeah. probably more, more than 40 years ago. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, I, you know, I something agree. about it, how it really speaks it's it, it has a language that sounds in today's world so mm -hmm. i find young students today love to play shostakovich absolutely and without, yeah and without i think i wouldn't have fully understood until much later what that music is about and why and so that was that was great yeah, I can imagine. I, I wished, uh, wish I could have met somebody like him or Oystrak or, and just found yeah. out. So, yeah, I mean. I mean, the other, the other really interesting thing about Slava, and this cut both ways, was that he was very supportive of us. I mean, yeah. he had chosen us and he wanted to show the world that he could choose the right people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, for right away, he would bring us along when he played and in fact at times he would insist that you know if you're if you're going to hire me then you have to you have to hire this guy to be the conductor and so yeah. you know even pieces i had never conducted before or i was conducting for the first time in my life like the dutieux tout monde lointain with yeah. the london philharmonic when i had no idea what i was doing you know, Slava said, "Oh, I've I'm going to London. I'm going to do the Dutia, and I've and and they're and they're going to hire you to be the conductor." And I'm like, "Oh, okay." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, it's, and on on one hand, that was unbelievable experience to yeah. be doing a piece like that with him five feet from you when it was written for him, and he and the composer is out in the hall. So that was an amazing experience. Yeah. On the other hand, as you can probably imagine, as a British orchestra player, the players are sort of thinking, who the hell is this guy that was <laughs> brought along? And so, yeah. you know, you've got, got to win over the doubters. Nobody's ever heard of you. Yeah. And then, of course, they've given you a whole subscription concert. So there's other music you're doing that Slava's not on stage for. And so the pressure on you is kind of insane. I mean, on one hand, it was really fun on another, and it certainly helped get my name out and kind yeah. of launch, launch one's career, quote unquote. But on the other hand, it was also, I think, you know, some people looked askance at you because of this, mm. uh, because you weren't really there as a conductor, you were there as Rostropovich's protege. Well, uh, that's another question I'm going to bring up later is that, you know, uh, how you found or find uh, orchestra's attitudes over the years have changed or are different either side of the Atlantic. But we'll, you mentioned about, you know, that it was a great start doing that, being involved with Rostropovich. Do you think that was a, a bigger start to your career than when you won? Uh, it's a bit of a mouthful of a, of a competition. You were the first winner of the SIVA National Endowment for the Arts Conductors Award. Now, <laughs> the, the, what do you think that award just helped what was already starting under your time with Slava and um or do you think maybe that also helped push you yet further out into the wider world I think Slava giving me the job of assistant was critical without yeah. that I could easily not be a conductor today every conductor looks for a break like that and that was the major break that put me in front of professional orchestras and then with his prodding and his help getting a little bit of guest conducting. I would say the Seaver Award, which was an unusual award, it was an enormous cash prize, basically, that you could do anything you wanted with as long as it was designed to uh, increase your, your musical and, and career uh, potential. Mm. But the Seaver Award, since it was brand new, it, it 
it didn't have a cachet yet in terms of like winning winning the Besançon competition that yeah. used to be or the Schulte competition or something like that. Yeah. So in that sense, it was just a bunch of money that we spent on scores and <laughs> travel and yeah. watching other conductors and and stuff like that. And I think Kent Nagano and I were the first two winners back then. And I'm not sure it, it had that much effect in that I don't think people knew what it was until a few years later. Yeah, yeah. And it certainly, it certainly, like all of those things, it helps put your name in front of people, and that's what you're looking for when you're in your twenties. Mm. Um, and so, uh, actually, that this was after you'd you'd already become music director of the Northeastern Pennsylvania Philharmonic, and not long after that, music director of the New Jersey Symphony Orchestra. Um, and you've been, uh, as I'm going to go on to soon, music director of St Paul Chamber Orchestra, but also in Europe, Frankfurt Radio and Belgian National Orchestra. Being a music director, in, and I know the role is vastly different one side of the Atlantic than it is on the other side of the Atlantic, um, to do with fundraising or dealing with philanthropists. And on the other side, you, you, you may have no need to, to touch that at all, especially if you're conducting a radio orchestra in Germany. There's nothing like that uh, required. Can you really, before I go on to talk about the music and the players and the differences, what are the differences being a music director on both sides? Even things like hiring and firing is a, each, I know each orchestra has a different feeling about this or different way of doing it, but how much do, do you involved in say the US versus um, Europe? Yeah, I think you've put your finger on a lot of the differences. Uh, in the US, the, the amount of time you have to spend on quote unquote non-musical activities is large. And yeah. I think many conductors find it onerous. I think European conductors, European born conductors or non-American born conductors, I should say, find it uh, mystifying, probably frustrating. Many of them, I think, not, I'm not sure any of us loves it. I no. mean, it's not, not that much fun to, but um, I, I think the, the, uh, the, the critical difference that ultimately starts to affect us is, yeah, how much time you can devote to the art and how much time you have to devote to the business. Yes. Um, yeah. I, I do think that in, in America, these are phenomenal orchestras. The level of playing is incredibly high. The level at the first rehearsal is like in the UK, it's kind of unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. That's not necessarily true in continental Europe and in other places where there's actually more rehearsal time built yes. in. Mm. So I think that every orchestra kind of adjusts to its conditions. And if an orchestra like in the UK and in the US has limited rehearsal time, time is money, money has to be raised, uh, budgets have to be tight, the, the whole structure of the orchestra is built on that premise. Mm, that's so true, yeah. So that yeah. affects repertoire, that affects the number of concerts you play, that affects how you play the concerts, how much you travel, et cetera, et cetera. And in Europe, if it's a radio orchestra in Germany or the Belgian National Orchestra where your salary is essentially being paid for by the government, and even today in COVID, the Belgian National Orchestra salaries are being paid, even when they're not when they're not playing is an yeah. astonishing level of support for the arts. Uh, yeah, that, that, that creates a different kind of dynamic where the, the notion that this is a fundamental part of society, it's valued by society, your profession is on a par with the profession of a lawyer or a business, business person, that, that creates a different mindset. And, mm. you know, there's pros and cons to both. And the way the orchestra carries out its business kind of logically results, organically results from that model. Yes, so, yeah. So yeah. for example, you know, the, the, the German radio orchestras have, you know, you start rehearsal on Monday and you don't play until Thursday and you're liable to rehearse from 9.30 in the morning till two in the afternoon for four straight days. There isn't an orchestra in the UK or America that will give you even half that amount of rehearsal time. No, exactly true. Exactly true. Con consequently, you know, the German orchestras maybe at the first rehearsal aren't as well prepared. They haven't done maybe as much homework to be prepared because they know that the rehearsal process will be more extensive. 
But the thing I learned in Germany that, that just knocked me out as a, an American was when the players said to me, oh, Maestro, can we do that again? <laughs> you know, <laughs> oh, please, could you, could you rehearse us in this passage some more? Because we want to be, you know, we want to be more confident. We want to dig a little deeper. And, mm. and uh, that was something that I, that was a phrase I hadn't heard that much conducting in the States and in the UK, where, you know, in the UK, they're more likely to say, oh, uh, Maestro, could you cancel tomorrow afternoon's rehearsal? Because <laughs> we don't really think we need it. And some of us have booked a session at that time. You know? <laughs> that's that's, happened, that's yeah. happened to me with a London orchestra, you know, yeah. where they say, well, we're actually kind of counting on you to cancel that rehearsal. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. I mean, I'm, it, 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 it definitely popped into my head when you, as you described so brilliantly how the circumstances of the orchestra's existence um, impact on how they work. And, and even, uh, you know, I mentioned hiring and firing. You know, when you come to hiring people in the UK, and I'm assuming it's the US because you do lump them together, you know, you, you need somebody there who can sight read anything, who's very quickly ad adapts to what the conductor would want, or, you know, if it's a complete 180 degree change, it's expected to happen there and then you know that those sort of things when you're coming to looking at appointments um matter less when you've got as you said in germany four whole days rehearsal where you as conductor can rehearse anything you can rehearse something eight times on the trot nobody's going to complain because they want to be rehearsed and then right they slightly more need to be schooled to get to the point of the concert it, so yeah it, it matters less that they're not a great sight reader wouldn't you say yeah you're you're instance? absolutely right and and that even carries over into how the auditions are run because mm. i think in in belgium and in germany i've noticed that the way they play their concerto is more heavily weighted in the ears and minds of the committee members than in the States where it's almost entirely about how they play the excerpts. Of yeah. course, they want to hear a stylish, stylish Mozart concerto, but then, you know, a great Sibelius concerto followed by messy uh, Don Juan excerpt and you're sunk in the United yeah. States. Whereas that great Sibelius concerto in Germany might, might win over some people more. Mm, yeah, it's very true. And the UK is exactly the same. You know, when I taught the violin and they would bring their excerpts for mock auditions and they, you know, the students would look at me and I'd say, yeah, forget the Mozart. We don't need to listen to the Mozart concerto. Right. Let's work today and the next lesson, at least for the next two lessons on these excerpts. And they, they'd look at you and say, really? No, I said, no, no, the panel are really only listening to see what your Don Juan's like, what your Rachmaninoff Second Symphony Fugue, Second Violin Pit right, is like, right. you know, what your Mozart 39 is like. That's all they're interested in. Um, yeah, don't, don't worry about your concerto. And in fact, at New England Conservatory, we, we teach that. I mean, we, especially now in COVID, where we're doing a lot of remote teaching, we're doing mock audition prep, which is, you know, focused on the minutia of... Yeah. Excerpts. Before we leave either side of the pond, um, we've talked about how the orchestras maybe are set up, and then, but did you find any any really big differences in rehearsal other than, as you've just said, you know, please can we you rehearse us some more? Um, sounds like Oliver Twist. Please, sir, can, please, sir, have, can I have some more? <laughs> the but, German word, the German word for rehearsal is probe, and mm. you know, probe is what is you know that's that's what they want. That's what yes. you do in a in a German rehearsal. Yeah. But it also affects programming, and it affects a certain kind of uh, how do I say without sounding uh, too prejudiced that it, it, huh. it in Europe, I think you're allowed to be more adventuresome and more of a risk taker under certain parameters, yeah. obviously, yeah. You know, within certain parameters, yeah. than in the States and in the UK where, of course, you know, box office and big name soloist and the high fee of the big name soloist and the war horse that you need to play to fill the box office. You know, these are, some of these American orchestras are trying to play each subscription concert four times. Mm. and you know, eight that trying to sell 8,000 tickets. So how many New World symphonies versus <laughs> Dvorak five, you yeah. know, you will feel pressure. 
And I must say, I delighted in my nine or 10 years in Frankfurt in the ability to program in a creative way. That isn't to say you can't do that in the States. And, and smart people do do it, of course. Mm. But, but uh, I'll give you just one example uh, around, uh, I forget when it was, but probably the beginning of the, maybe around the year 2000, I did the John Adams century roles in Frankfurt with uh, Emmanuel Axe. Mm. And Manny and I were working on the piece together. I had never done it. Of course, it was written for him. So we were, we were having our, our fun meeting going over the piece. And then he said, what else is on the program? And I think I said, it's a kind of Americana program. We're going to do Revueltas and Ives Second. And Manny looked at me in horror and said, will anybody come? <laughs> but I thought for a minute and I thought, uh-oh, maybe nobody's going to show up for this yeah. concert. But in fact, you know, Adams is hugely popular in yeah. Germany and the concert was really well sold. And I realized that a program like that would have been pretty hard to sell to the management of an American orchestra. And nobody batted an eye when I said, let's do this in Germany. And it sold well. I mean, it's a brilliant program. Um, I mean, I love all Revueltas uh, and John <laughs> Adams. And I also love the Ives Second Symphony. So I'd have been there. But I, I, I know what you're talking about. I used to be on the artistic committee uh, at the CBSO. Mm. And sometimes, you know, we would see programs put in front of us. And I used to regularly say, look, um, a good concert in the UK needs at least two of the three carrots. You know, the, the carrot that right. the audience will want to bite. You know, have you right. given me a great programme that will guarantee bombs on seats? That's carrot one. Well, no, you haven't. Well, therefore, you need to give me a wonderful solo, a massive name soloist. Right. Or, right. Uh, and or, uh, the third carrot, a massive name conductor. You know, if, you, if you're if you only giving me an <laughs> overture uh, with a conductor I've never heard of and a soloist who's young and, you know, I'm really struggling to sell this thing, you know. And, uh, yeah. and, and I mean, in theory, I for a UK audience, that concert... Um, it, you know, it had you and Manny Axe, but the program would have been, you know, yeah. as I said, I'd have gone, but I don't know how many others would have done. There was a program I did in Frankfurt that I cite as another example. When it was right around the turn of the millennium, we did, we decided to do a concert with one piece from each of the last four centuries, <laughs> <laughs> and the, the the 20th century piece was the Barrio Sinfonia. Oh yes. Which is, which is a piece I think is one of the masterpieces of the 20th century. And we had the, I think we had Neue Valkal Stuttgart. We had, it wasn't the Swingle singers, but we had these amazing yeah. singers that were specialists in this sort of thing. And so they opened the concert singing Gesualdo by themselves oh, in the 17th century. And then we did a Handel Concerto Grosso. And I think it was the Schumann Violin Concerto with Frank Peter Zimmermann and Berrios <laughs> and I mean, can you imagine an American orchestra agreeing to that program? Or a UK one, really? Yeah. yeah, really, not a chance. I won't. I won't claim that it sold the most number of tickets ever in Frankfurt, but I think it was a program that everybody was proud of because it made so much sense and it had such an impact. Well, I can sort of use programming to link into the next topic of conversation, which is you are director of orchestras at the New England Conservatory in Boston, which means, you know, you teach, you have a conducting class there. Um, what, going all the way back to Charles Brook and a question from earlier, now I can ask you, do you try and do 50-50 sort of score, learning scores and also stick technique? But then there's an extra level, you know, I... I give advice at the conservatory in Birmingham to the conductors, the postgraduate conductors there about programming, about rehearsal orders, about mm -hmm. things that don't normally come up in conducting classes in inverted commas. So what is your approach? Do they get the whole Hugh Wolf experience of your programs as well as score study and baton technique and all of that sort of stuff? Um, I would say I probably am influenced by how I was taught. So it's right. heavy on the score study. I think, you know, basically, if you don't have score knowledge or if your score knowledge is sloppy, then you really don't have any business being a conductor. So, <laughs> yeah, <true>. and, you <laughs> know, you and I know there are people out there that, that are more concerned about how they look in the mirror than how mm. much they know about the score. And so I really try to instill in my students that, 
you know, you have a sacred responsibility not to stand up in front of an orchestra when you don't know the score well and and fake it, that that's mm. really a cardinal sin and that, that score study is the bedrock of everything. So it's probably 60% score study, 25% uh, physical stuff. Mm. But, you know, when you when you choose students who are auditioning, you know, you're looking for physical stuff that isn't going to be highly problematic and hard to fix. Yes. You know, let's be honest about it. I mean, that would be true if you're, you know, listening to a violinist who yeah. has, you know, something wrong with the left hand or something wrong with the bow arm. So, so yeah, you're looking for physical gift that will get you at a certain point that you can hone and you can be practical about advising. And then, yeah, the, as you say, the last 10, 15% more and more these days, I think you have an obligation to give them some kind of, of window into how the business works, yeah. what, you, what you need to know, especially if you're gonna be working in the States. And, and my students generally apply for jobs as assistant conductors with fairly large professional American orchestras. And that's a whole different, that's a, that's a special job description. You have to know how to do youth concerts. You have to know how to do pops concerts. You have to do, know how to do concerts on little or no rehearsal. Mm. It's very different from the sort of Kapellmeister or assistant conductor of an opera house in Europe. That's another kettle of fish entirely. So depending on what direction they want to go, I try to give them some, some basics of what you're gonna need to know. Because you know, when I was hired by Rostropovich in 1979 and did my first youth concert, fortunately there was a, a lovely guy in charge of the educational department of the orchestra. And he spent a month with me preparing me for that first concert and the, exactly what I would say and how I would say it and writing a script and fixing all the little excerpts. I mean, it was quite a production. Back then we were very influenced by Bernstein's Young People's Concerts yes, for Television when I was a kid and nobody's ever done them better. And knowing how to do that is a skill that you're not going to learn in conducting class. No, exactly. Um, but, you know, I think it's nice that you are, you know, sort of touching on that. Um, I often say that I, they're the hardest concerts I, you ever get to conduct a family concerts on a Sunday when you might have 13 different pieces, all different genre full of corners, full of stops and starts, yeah. the sort of things that, you know, you don't encounter in a, in a symphony concerto overture concert, which is frankly a lot easier. It's a, it's a piece of theatre as well yes. in that, you yeah. know, you've got to keep their attention and you've got to sense if it's lagging or, you know, I learned right away, don't program any soft Debussy, you know, the, <laughs> the kids won't, they just, it just doesn't make any impact, even though it's great music and it might be picturesque or it might be describing something beautiful afternoon of a fawn isn't going to cut it at a children's concert mm. and so yeah there's all kinds of of ways in which the yeah I mean Bernstein I think really did it amazingly well and I mean we haven't touched on Bernstein but you know he was he was someone who when I was at university came to Harvard for two years to give these lectures so there was a lot of there was a lot of contact with him in terms of of the giving a kind of inspirational presence. And for as you probably know from having interviewed a bunch of American conductors, there's probably no American conductor my age who doesn't think of Bernstein as a mentor. Yeah, absolutely. Um, whether you whether they met him or not, you know, he was yeah. such a, a media personality, if you could say that when, you know, compared to today, the media was far smaller. But yeah, he was the, the first, you know, great American born conductor. Um, uh, and who, who was there at that time when the media, media filming and all of that was just exploding, yeah. recordings and everything. Yeah, you, you can't help but have, have been touched in some way by what he did. Musically and yeah. artistically, yeah, whether yeah. you met him or not. Um, when you teach, I wonder whether you teach them uh, the answer to my next question, which is the question I ask all conductors, um, because both the, the average classical music fan and the conducting students and geeks love the answers to this question. When you learn a new score, how do you prepare it? How do you learn it? As you've said, you're a great pianist. Do you sit at the piano, use the piano, or do you just sit at your desk in your study? Do you start at page one and work your way through, or do you have a quick overall flick through and look at the details? And 
the important one, uh, really, especially for the geeks, uh, when do you write a lot of things in, or do you use colours and all of that sort of stuff, or are you one of these people who likes a fresh, completely blank, untouched score? How do you go about it? I I write a lot in my scores, in colours, in pencil. Uh, I cover my scores with notes to myself. <laughs> so uh, same as me. I'm nodding I, away. The, I, the listener can't see me, but yeah, I'm exactly the I same mean, as you. I, I, I'm amazed at these conductors who say they don't mark their scores, and I'm sure it's true. But it's like for me, that's crazy because for me, it's it's. Um, and this is one thing I actually I tell my students, and it's been important for me personally in practical experience. I say you should mark a score so that you can pull it off a shelf, having not looked at it in 10 years and conducted in 24 hours. Absolutely and, correct. And, I agree, and, yeah. And yeah. If you mark a score well, you really can do that for any score in your library. And that has happened to me. Mm. I have been asked, for example, uh, there was a cancellation in Philadelphia. So I was asked to conduct the Philadelphia Orchestra in the Penderecki Viola Concerto. <laughs> wow. And I had happened to have done it with a cellist, the sort of cello version of it. But yeah. I had the piece and I had marked the score and the rehearsal was going to be in 48 hours. I was in living in London at the time. So I was flying in the other direction. And... And yeah, I felt like I could do it. And I think if I had done the piece but hadn't marked the score, I'm not sure I would have remembered a single thing about the piece because mm -hmm. it, you know, it's not the kind of piece that's like, oh, that sticks in my mind. I can whistle the tunes from the Pendretsky Viola Concerto <laughs> that I did years ago. So yeah, I think that's, and that's incredibly valuable because young conductors will find themselves in that position. That is, you know, your big break comes when someone gets sick. It happened to me. It happened to Andrew Lytton in Washington. It happened to both of us. It happens all the time. Mm -hmm. It happens today. And so, yeah, you know, why, why wouldn't you, and why wouldn't you, if you'd noticed a, that a certain Boeing works well, or that a certain passage that you didn't think needs a lot of rehearsal does in fact need a lot of rehearsal. Why wouldn't you put a little sticky note saying, make sure you rehearse this passage at the first rehearsal, even though it's toward the end of the piece, et cetera, mm. et cetera. I agree. I, for me also, I, I, I've discovered, or I discovered really rather early on, it was my way of learning the piece. You know, that there are times I know, you know, I know a page turns coming up and I know what's written on the other side of the page, not what the music is. I know the music and what's written because I remember writing it in. Yeah. It's a sort of yeah. a way of, of, you know, by muscle memory or by somewhere getting the music off the page and up into my head. Um, I, I, I do know conductors. and I have seen scores of conductors with nothing in and amazing. And I'm, I, I do find it amazing. I'm not criticizing them because if that's what they do, that's what they do. I mean, one yeah, person's yeah. come on here and said, if, if you need to write in a score, you don't know the music, you know, and I was sitting here <laughs> going, oh, okay, right. <laughs> um, but it, it, what it proves is that we're all different. And uh, like you, if I find a Boeing I love, I'd write it in. If I find a, a musician who said a comment that would, I think, do you know what, that's yeah. really helped the musical process. I'll, at the end of the rehearsal, I'll write it in, yeah. Yeah, I have quotes from other conductors that I liked, you know, I put in quotes and put who said it at a certain point. Sometimes it's just something funny. Sometimes it's yeah. something really insightful. Sometimes it's something that just trips, trips a switch in your brain and makes you think differently. Yeah. And also, I mean, you, you did it uh, as an assistant conductor under Slava Rostropovich and with Andrew Lytton. My assistantship really was 22, 22 years in the CBSO playing. But I remember mm. the certain, there's one, I know in my score right now for Elgar 2, there's a, a, a note to myself which says, remember the time Andrew Lytton rehearsed this all pizzicato, and it's all marked Arco. But the effect and the way it got us to play together so quickly and so easily, I thought, right, I'm, if, I, if I ever get to sign me up, I got my Elgar 2 score and wrote it in. I thought, right, you never know. <laughs> Yeah. And, and it works, but things yeah. like that, yeah, I, I know quite a lot of people, you know, Barbara Hannigan is right when she's just singing and she's not conducting. And if a conductor says something about the piece, she'll write it in, into her vocal score and then put it into a full score. Yeah, um, yeah very, it's a fascinating topic uh, amongst us conductors, but I think more, more listeners are realising that, you know, we do spend probably more time in our studies than we actually do in a concert hall and a 
and on the podium and in concerts. Yeah. Far more, far more. Yeah. I mean, yeah. for every hour of rehearsal, I probably spend 10 to 20 hours of preparation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Hugh, it's time for the 10 questions. And as Julie Andrews says, let's start at the very beginning because it's a very good place to start. <laughs> what sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? Um, well, I'll do the hate first. Um, yeah. And this, I find, this is, this is interesting because I find as I get older, and I don't know, I mean, I, I suppose our hearing does change as, I get, as we get older. But as I get older, really loud noises are actually physically painful. Mm. And that was not true as a kid. But now if a siren goes by, I have to cover my ears or, mm. you know, a jet plane taking off that. So that, that can actually be physically painful and sort of, you know, you want to protect your hearing. So, yeah, yeah really loud noises of any sort. Yeah. And sounds that I love um, probably water in the form of the ocean or a waterfall or a, a babbling brook as Beethoven sixth. Yes, so of course. So beautifully illustrates. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm not sure as an ex second violinist, and I'm maybe I shall <laughs> speak to my viola playing friends here as well. Uh, that's right, not I the can, most I, rewarding of movements for I, you know. I can just imagine. <laughs> it's like, yeah. I, I I also love the sound of a babbling brook. Just don't make me don't make me play it ever again, please. <laughs> <laughs> If you had 24 hours free, what would you spend it doing? Well, that's, if I were free and not at home, um, I'd probably go walking and exploring. I, I do that pretty much every day anyway. And mm. obviously in the pandemic times, I'm walking several miles a day now just to stay fit and also just to stay sane. <laughs> so hiking, climbing, outdoorsy stuff. I, I'm, I'm what you guys call a ginger, so. I don't like to be out in the sun, but I do like to be outdoors. Yeah. And so, yeah, something like that. If I'm home and I'm indoors and it's raining, I suppose cooking or reading would be mm. the, the things I do. But when, yeah, when you're away and you're guest conducting somewhere, be it the first time or even at many times you've been to a city, to just go out wandering and exploring after rehearsal, yeah. I love it. I absolutely I do I, love it. I used yeah. to I used to go to museums. I I confess I do that a lot less. Yeah. And I just like to walk. I just like to be outside and get the feel of neighborhoods, get the feel of parks. Who would be a favorite conductor of yesteryear? Um Probably round up the usual suspects, <laughs> as, they say in, as they say in Casablanca, because uh, I'm sure everybody says Kleiber and Bernstein. So for me, those would probably be the first two. Yeah. Carlos. Yes. Eric, yeah. Eric as well, but Carlos Kleiber and Bernstein, whom I never saw Kleiber live, but I saw Bernstein a lot and yeah. I knew Bernstein and he knew me to some degree. So, so that was a kind of special inspiration. Also, as a college kid watching Ozawa conduct the Boston Symphony was revelatory and probably uh, subliminally pushed me in the direction of conducting. Wow. And, and then later watching Abado. So mm. I would say those, 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 those four had probably the strongest influence in me. Most, I guess I saw all of them Except Kleiber. Yeah, I saw all of them live except Kleiber. I, I saw all of them rehearse except Kleiber mm. as well, which, which was very important. I, I can add or tell you that Kleiber does, but he is by far the most popular choice uh, amongst <laughs> conductors. Um, Bernstein, yes, very much with the American conductors, but n less so with anybody else. Uh, Abado has appeared a couple of times, and Azawa very infrequently, if at all before, I can't remember. Um, but yeah, I can I can imagine why he would inspire you. Uh, I always like watching him conduct um, whenever I've seen him on the TV or yeah, on the film. Yeah, to me it was it's it's just the hands are breathtaking. Mm. The hands are you know it's not necessarily about the interpretation or what have you. I mean, for something like Ravel or Stravinsky, the interpretation is fabulous, and the hands are just beyond description, beautiful and clear, yeah, yeah. and fluid and never awkward. And there was just something 
about him that was, you know, and, and that weird memory as well. I mean, it was all from memory. I mean, Taranga Leela from memory for God's sake. And so, yeah, there was something really impressive about the way that brain worked and the, and the way those hands expressed. But Bernstein, I must say, you know, I, I, I understand that non-Americans maybe don't quite have that, that connection, but, but he, came, he came a lot to National Symphony because Slava was able to persuade him. You know, yeah. back then he didn't guest conduct orchestras like the National Symphony very often. He conduct, guest conducted, you know, Vienna and London and so forth. Mm-hmm. But he came a lot to Washington, so we got to see him a lot. And, you know, we saw both the excesses and the brilliance. Mm. And I think what a lot of non-Americans focus on is the excess. And they don't necessarily have firsthand experience the way we did with the, 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 that, the brain, that, that, the mind he had. That was, that was the fastest, most agile brain I think I've ever met. And in that sense, it was it was kind of awe-inspiring how fast his mind worked, how quickly he could solve problems, how how he understood all facets. I mean, the self-indulgence and the wasting time in rehearsals became, I think, quite sad and mm-hmm. toward the end debilitating, but still. As, uh, toward the end, he worked more and more with students, and then you know he you can you can you can carry on with students, and you can talk a lot with students, and and watching him do that was breathtaking, absolutely mm-hmm. breathtaking. My first impression of him was when when I was in college, I sang in the in the choir, and he came and he did Stravinsky Oedipus Rex with the Boston Symphony using the male choir from Harvard. They videotaped it for his lecture. This was a piece we spent weeks doing with him. And we recorded it in Symphony Hall, Boston, with the orchestra on the stage and the choir out where the audience sits. So he was turning around and we did live performances of it. And then we went into a television studio and did this. You can still find it on YouTube, this hilarious I mean, hilarious, I shouldn't say that it's, it's an amazing performance, but it's sort of hilarious in its 1970s look. Yes, yeah, yeah. With, yeah. with Tatania Traianos and Rene Colo singing a, a whole video production. And for him to figure out how to do a video production in a dry recording studio under union conditions with the Boston Symphony late at night and just, just managing the insanity of that, it was astonishing astonishing to see how he pulled it off. Uh, uh. I don't think anybody else would have done it without melting down. And he melted down a little bit, but, but it was, there was a kind of brilliance with how he could handle getting things to come together and to happen and then to come to life. Yeah, well, he's, he's one of three conductors I wished I'd played for. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it was him, Hightink, and Kleiber. I never played. For I got to, I, I got to play keyboard under him in yeah. at the National Symphony, which was you know totally great under yeah. Copeland as well. Because I would you know I would occasionally be the keyboard player, and so so that was that was really fun. And who would be a favorite current conductor? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can see why people would be would would feel squeamish about this. This one, but um, yeah, yeah. I, I would, I would, I, I thought about this, and I think that I, I would suggest three people: John Elliot Gardner, Sir Simon, and Esa Pekka. Yeah, yeah. And I suggest them because I think all three of them have kind of advanced or renewed or changed the way orchestras program or operate, or the risks they're willing to take, or they've pushed the envelope a bit. Yeah. And I admire that greatly. And I just think, yeah, these are guys that have have had an impact beyond just they're, they're wonderful interpreters, they're great conductors, they're great rehearsers, they know their repertoire, but their impact is somehow beyond that. And for me, that's inspiring. What is the hardest work you have ever conducted? I don't know if it was the hardest, but the one that gave me the most nightmares and the most trauma was uh, Steve Reich Tehelim. Oh, don't know I don't it. Know, I don't know if you know it. It's a, it's a brilliant piece. It's a brilliant piece for small ensemble and singers. Mm. And they're singing in Hebrew psalms. And it's kind of 
it's kind of, it's relentless, it's minimalist, it's relentless change of meter. And the worst aspect of it is that it has repeat signs. And the repeat signs might be like eight pages prior. And so part of it is just the layout of the score is an effing nightmare, if I'm allowed to say that. <laughs> yes, you it, are, yes. Because <laughs> you're, you're flipping through this Boozy and Hawk score and there are only like four measures to a page and then you've got to flip back eight pages and then, I mean, nobody could possibly memorize it, I don't think, because it's mixed meter virtually every bar. And, the, and it's another one of those pieces, sort of like Histoire du Soldat, you know, where the, where the bar line and the mixed meter are not congruent. Yes, <laughs> yeah. you know? yeah. I know and, exactly what you mean. And, and so that makes it doubly difficult. And you know, the, the, the one time I performed it, it did not go well and I've been traumatized by it ever since and haven't <laughs> done it. <laughs> uh, it's funny that there are certain pieces, it doesn't matter. I mean, I'm going away from, the, from Steve Reich and from minimalism and, and that thing about turning pages and repeats. But there are certain pieces out there, I don't know whether you know this, um, I don't know whether you have this experience. The piece I've conducted the most ever in my career is John Adams' Short Ride in a Fast Machine. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. It, in over here at the BBC put it into a thing called Ten Pieces for Children, and so everywhere you went, they wanted to include this piece. Right. And it's still right. very popular. So I think I've conducted it now something like 35 times. You'd think by now I'd be able to commit that thing to memory, but there's something <laughs> about what he does with the the time changes and where the accents are. Right, right. I, you know, if I try to conduct from memory, I always fall down somewhere. You right, know, right. And I don't, I, I don't think I'll ever be able to do it. But um, there, there are pieces, aren't there, where you just think, I know, I know, I know this, but I just dare shut that score and do it. You know, right, right, from memory. Right. I mean, it's it's odd. I. I mean, Rite of Spring is a piece I've been able to do from memory. I, I don't do it anymore from memory, but when I was a young kid, I did Rite of Spring from memory a yeah. lot. And it's, it's very, very hard, but there's a logic to it that really, once you get inside the logic, some, something I learned from Messina actually, it really works. And there are other pieces like uh, Copeland Third or Stravinsky Symphony in Three Movements that I find much harder. Yeah, much yeah. harder to memorize mm. and it's so it's not just mixed meter it's just as you say is is there a logic to it that your brain can rely on or or there, are there simply no patterns if there are simply no patterns i you know my brain can't do it yeah. i can't memorize it. when traveling abroad to conduct what item could you not leave home without um two mm. noise cancelling headphones yes nowadays yeah, yeah for all sorts of things, particularly the travel. Mm. And since I do, since I live in the States and do a lot of guest conducting and conducting in Europe, melatonin, which Stephen Isserlis turned me on to for jet lag. Oh, okay. Yeah. There's no particular scientific proof that it works, but it certainly seems to help me. It oh, really, wow. really helped me, you know, melatonin will, will, uh, trigger the sleep hormone a little bit. So for jet lag, that's changed my life, especially as I've gotten older when I think jet lag is, feels, feels more uh, of a burden now than it did 20 years ago. What is the one thing you would change about being a conductor? The loneliness, mm. the fact that we don't, the fact that we're, I mean, we, we're all colleagues and, and we can be really fun with each other and we know each other, but but we don't make music together, you know. Instrumentalists make chamber music together and they sit in rehearsal together, but two conductors never sit in a rehearsal together. I mean, very rarely. And so you don't have the same collegial feeling that traveling instrumentalists or chamber musicians can have. It is a desperately lonely occupation. As you know, the studying is done alone and you know, you're on the podium, but you don't, especially, you probably know this, especially as a, as a former orchestra player, you know the dynamic is very different between yeah. the orchestra players after the rehearsal and the conductor and the orchestra players after the rehearsal. Yeah. You are not, 
you can try to be at your own peril, frankly, <laughs> mates, mates, mates with everybody and go out and have drinks and so forth. But, but there is this distance that exists and you really can't do anything about it. And if you're not comfortable spending a lot of time by yourself, then I think you're in the wrong profession. Uh, absolutely, but it's hard. yeah. But it, it's hard. It, it is hard. Uh, I think it's one of the one of the byproducts of this of this podcast has been normally once I've pressed stop on the recording and we have a little chat afterwards. Most of the people, when I'm looking at you down the camera lens on Zoom, or even when we've done it without picture, most people have said, do you know, that was really good fun. I haven't chatted about conducting like this for a long time, and especially not with yeah. another conductor. Yeah. Um, and as you say, we just don't. Um, on the rare occasion, there's another conductor in the city or conducting, or they come to the place where you live, and you get chance. You know, I've Ed Gardner has been to my house two or three times for dinner now. It's wonderful to chat, but it's, it's so rare isn't it and and as yeah. you say when you're on your own the, the the point my low point is normally every day at dinner time when you're sitting on your own with your book in a restaurant or in the hotel restaurant right. or, yeah. oh yeah that's yeah when you decide yeah. yeah you decide to go out to a restaurant you know with a book or a or an ipad in your hand and it's yeah it's 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 a it's a sad feeling <laughs> it is <Deeply> sad. <laughs> Well, uh, uh, therefore, maybe your answer to the next question is maybe a slightly less lonely profession. So what profession other than your own would you like to attempt or have attempted? I, I, I would say, you know, when I was younger and, and I, I, I veered toward being a scientist or being, uh, being a, a medical doctor. So mm. I would say you know, being, being something like that would have, would certainly have interested me and probably not any less lonely, frankly, yeah. but uh, yeah, I would say something else, something along those lines, something in the realm of medicine or science. If the world were to end tonight, what would be your choice of final meal and drink? <laughs> I'm glad it's the world will end, not you're, you're going to be executed in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> for, mix, for messing up the mixed meter. Um, uh, I suppose uh, just, just kind of on a casual level, a lovely plate of elaborate sushi, a Belgian beer. Mm. And then I find to my wife's great humor, whenever I have sushi or something really salty, I like to have ice cream afterwards. So some, some uh, gelato or homemade ice cream to top it off that would that would that would make me very happy brilliant <laughs> and uh, i have to say the last hour or so has made me very happy it's been wonderful to see you and catch up and chat to you and i hope in a post-covid world that our paths wow. bump into each other and we get to sit down and have another beer and another chat yeah yeah in a post-covid world <laughs> fingers fingers crossed yeah yeah hoping for better times a Mic on the Podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal, with music by Ben Dawson. Next time, I chat with a Swedish conductor, who has taken up conducting relatively recently and also relatively late in his life. He's already guest conducted with many high-profile orchestras across the globe, but is probably better known as being the preeminent trumpet soloist of his generation. But until then, bye-bye. <laughs>